into a ball. An argument ensued about who the goats are. The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod. Now fans worldwide say, not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad who chronicles the vanguard of hip hop at large. Rap taste slacked off, don't need to be mad dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod. Rap, pop, pop. Dad Bod Rap Pod every week, or most weeks, we talk to people who are moving and shaping hip-hop culture. This week is no different. Joining us in Zoom is the formidable, the unforgettable, Def C. What's happening, man? Yo, what's going on, everybody? Uh, nice to see everybody. Hope your weeks are off to a good start. Yeah, it's too late. Maybe the golem can help out, but... Um, <laughs> We, we're, we're hanging in there. Thank you so much for, for coming on the program. Uh, as you know, because you are a friend and follower of the program, we've been doing these uh, retrospective episodes. We're, we're looking back at the year 1993, all the amazing records that came out that year, um, and kind of like reevaluating them and, and doing these episodes about them. So um, shout out to everybody that's tapped in with those thus far. This week, we are talking about Black Moon's release into the stage 1993 tell me where where are you at in 1993 i have no idea how old you are age yourself i in podcast, 19- please <laughs> uh yeah so in 93 when this comes out i think i'm four years old because this is november Jesus of fucking christ right? november yeah. I, october and no was you were older than four years no, really? I was not. I was four years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. It's been uh, good to have you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this record, what I, what I will say is that uh, my experience with this album is definitely uh, one that resulted from, like, reading those you know, 100th issues of the source or like 150 issues of the source. And I was just kind of deep in stuff. Family had finally gotten the DSL hookup for internet at the house. So I was on Soul Seek, you know, grabbing as many of the classics as I could. And this was one of those joints for sure. This is definitely one of them. Because when I was four years old, I'm pretty sure... I was big into like Rafi and Sesame Street. And that's about it. Um, yeah, I mean, we when we were talking about this album, we were talking about how um, um, how young Buckshot was when we recorded this. I think it was like 19. Um, and just, uh, you know, you, you being an MC for a minute now, I wanted to get your perspective. Like, I, and I don't know when the last time you heard the album was, but how does how does a young Buckshot strike you as, a, as an MC? So I actually went back and revisited it when you guys said that we were going to be talking about it on uh, mm-hmm. on this episode. And um, man, Buckshot sounds like all of those 
really cheap studio sessions that like not and not in a I'm not trying to be disparaging in any way, but like is in your rhyming, like as a teenager, it's just pure energy that you're you're really vibing off of before you even get into the nuts and bolts of like how the craft works. So I think that that was something that uh, I think that was something. Did I freeze up at any point there just now? No, you you got the props. You're good. Good. (laughs) 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 So yeah, no, it's just kind of like the the pure energy of that time as an MC, where it was like, just going back and revisiting that album, the production, the rhyming, I think Buckshot, it was like the battery was in his back. And if you look at the in the background information on the album, he had something to prove to everybody in a bunch of different respects, certainly uh, none greater than on the microphone. So I think that was one of the things I, I appreciated about Buckshot. A young Buckshot is that kind of energy. And the person who probably reminded me the most of that energy really was Joey Badass on the 1999. Is that the name Good of the call. album? Yeah. Yep. On the 1999 project, that's probably the closest contemporary comparison I can think to make. But I, yeah, I love that. I love that album so much, man. And Buckshot's energy and the presence he brings to the mic on that record is like still to this day, you hear it and it pumps you up and it makes you want to rhyme. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, Glad to hear that. Uh, Adam, welcome. Good to see you, you. man. Good to see y'all. Yeah. you're good. You're good. Um, we we dig the record. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but we're still uh, touching on some Black Moon stuff. Um, I don't know if you were in New York yet at that time, but I know you are a super New York dude in many ways. Like Black Moon must have been in your backpack. Like talk to us about your what, what's your relationship with the group Black Moon? Are you a big fan? Is Enter the Stage like a personal classic for you? Where do you stand on that? It is a classic for me. And it was very important to me. It came out in 93, so I was still in high school in Boston. Um, It's maybe less important to me as a boot camp record than the Helter Skelter record or the Smith & Wesson record, but that's not to say that it's not a classic. The thing for me that stood out most was that that record, and when I say that record, I mean not just the album, but all of the 12 inches that dropped. Mm -hmm. It was an early chance for me to watch an MC evolve in what felt like real time. Um, Every remix that Buckshot did, he's exponentially better than he was on the album. The way that he flips up his flow on the Buck'em Down remix, Mm. I Got You Open, like these were mind-blowing, mind-expanding experiences for me to hear those records because you could hear this dude like figuring it out in real time, figuring out just how far he could take his style. Um, And that was fascinating to me. Like that whole era, you know, I was young and I was paying such close granular attention to every remix. So things like Buckshot flipping the flow on Buck'em Down or 
Nas switching chip tooth style to gold tooth smile on the remix of uh, The World Is Yours were like, right. they were these tiny details that felt like they were just for those of us who cared enough to pay that kind of attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of my memories of that record are really caught up in like tracking Buckshot's progression, if that makes sense. No, totally. And, and uh, as somebody who was also there, Def C was four. So <laughs> go get your mans. Cause he, he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just, it, it was, it was a, it was a cultural moment. In in addition, there were albums that came out that year, uh, but it was, it was definitely a cultural moment. I'm going to ask both of y'all the question that we, we actually did a whole episode about the album and we always end our retrospective episodes with this question, and I'll pose it first to you, Adam, and then to you, Adam. I mean, uh, <laughs> Monsbach and then Defsi. Um, do you do you think this is a timeless record or a record of its time? Well, you know, that's some cute wordplay right there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me. I'm a little hesitant to the categorization, you know, the dichotomy between the two. I guess it's more a record of its time for me, just in the sense that it's not one that I'm going to routinely go back to and play front to back. Now, that's partly because the beat miners also had not figured out how to master a record yet. Ooh. So <laughs> that record sounds sludgy and muddy in a way that's on one hand wonderful, but on another hand makes for a complex listening experience as compared again to like, boot camp records even from a year later two years mm. later mm. um the singles are classics to me like if i'm playing hip-hop out i will definitely put the buck down remix in the crate i'll put i got you open in the crate i'll put how many mcs in the crate um i'm also going to put the soundboy burial remix in the crate and uh heads ain't ready 12 inch in the crate you know what i mean like all of that is a continuum for me like i almost don't think of the Black Moon album as an album as much as I think of it as part of just this continuum on a two, three, four year rolling basis of just classic joints that the boot camp click, which was one of my favorite collectives in hip hop put out during that period. But if I'm being honest, I'm not rocking the album front to back. That's we appreciate the candor Def Def C. Uh timeless record and it's interesting because you listened to it many years after uh it actually came out but do you think it's it's a timeless record or a record of its time uh i think it depends i think when it comes to the rhyme styles on there it's probably a record of its time uh, but i think when it comes to the production just in revisiting it recently i think a lot of that sludginess in the low end kind of turned all the way up reminds me a little bit of like it was very clear that those guys were heavily influenced by dance hall and mm. dub music. So I then turned all the way up in a way that was different from, for example, how Tribe was doing it on Low End Theory. Um, it reminds me a lot of kind of what like, don't everybody jump me at once now, uh, what like 40 and Drake's production team do over there in terms of how they handled the low end on some of the hard hitting uh, songs that he does. I'm sorry, so, I don't know who you're I know talking that that's about. A weird... Who? who? <laughs> <laughs> so there's this Jewish rapper from 
Toronto. <laughs> he's not on Golem? Uh, nope. <laughs> no, he's not. Nah, we couldn't, you know, we just couldn't find room in the budget for him. It was uh, yeah. it was a last minute decision. It was a last minute call. He would not accept our offer of a $50 Best Buy gift card. Um, <laughs> and, so, a, and 12 lockers. But, and 12, and 12 lockers. The 12 is crazy. Uh, but yeah. So I think it's a I think it's a timeless record when it comes to the the production of the beats. Um, I think it's of its time when it comes to the rhyming and the energy. But again, I listened to this like a week ago and I ran it front to back just so that I could say that I listened to it front to back before we had this conversation. And the energy very much brought me back to a time in my uh, in a time in my life where the love for hip hop and rhyming was just so pure and unfiltered. And so I think having that energy was very a very that's like a timeless presence that that album brings. The idea of like you know anytime you're cut from a certain cloth of rapper, if you hear that album it's going to remind you of all of the ciphers that you were in or like all of the, you know, all of the studio, all of like the bedroom studios with, from my generation, at least like bedroom studios or like the studios you went to where like the soundproofing foam was just, just a little bit of it was ripped out the wall. Not all of it, but just <laughs> a little bit of it for it to be noticeable. And so I think, uh, because I think that that feeling is timeless, but, Again, answering the question, honestly, I think the rhyming styles on there are probably a bit more of their time. But I think the production and the feeling of it are timeless. Podcasting live from San Jose, California. It is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. I'm one third of your host, Damone Carter, aka Dim One. Um, not really a five foot assassin. I think uh, <laughs> I think I've I'm just outside of the um, short guy complex range, like just outside of it, though. Must like, be nice. I know. <laughs> I don't know how that feels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and here with the uh, shot LeBlanc. Uh, <laughs> it, it, did you do that because there was that uh, like jazz band in the 90s called Buckshot LaFonk? I didn't, but goddamn. Oh, I, I wish there, there was is. more intention yeah. behind Who was it. it. Was that uh, Winford Marsalis? No, Branford. 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 Winford hated it. Okay. Um, and I hated it too, but <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Branford. It was like um, someone came out of there, like uh, Michael Franti maybe, or one of he the other guys from Spearhead. Yeah, he was definitely on it. Yeah. Yeah, I hated it. And that like record. disposable heroes of hypocrisy, kind of the same thing. Yep, hated yeah. all of that. Yeah. <laughs> but I love you, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Yeah, um, a lot of good short representation on this record. Uh, not not since Fife has a... <laughs> Uh, MCs talk so much about how short they are, and you know, uh, <laughs> I always have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, good short representation in media is important to me. Absolutely, and 
this is not uh, a segue that means anything, but also short. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. David Ma, how's it going, man? Hey, man, good to be here. All, also known as Evil D. No, sorry. Uh, or Evil D Ma. <laughs> or the Three Foot Assassin. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, beat Modders? No. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was uncalled for. Um, yeah, so we're here to continue our 1993 retrospective series. Thanks, everybody, who's reached out to tell us how much they love this series. And I think a lot of people didn't realize how many albums, right. uh, meaningful albums, came out in 1993. We're like, too lazy and disorganized to do this, but we probably could have done one a week. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. For the entire year. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like 50. Yeah. Like we probably could have done 50. Yeah. It's, it, was a, it was a fruitful year. It was a year where, like, hip-hop, kind of crossroads like we'll do probably some of these next year and you'll see the crossroads is kind of a before and after and you won't be lonely <laughs> <laughs> thank you we can always use a bo bone thugs reference um but yeah we're here to talk about uh black moon's first album into the stage came out in 1993 on nervous which we'll get into like all the weird fuckery around nervous records one of the top logos though right it is it yes. is a pretty sweet logo totally. yes yeah, yeah. um so iconic I used, used to get hyped off of uh, the nervous logo yeah, but it, it's also tricky from a digging standpoint because up until this point they hadn't signed any hip-hop acts yes. so most of the 12 inches on nervous are dance records they are dance records i was about to say but you could get a kenny dope house record yeah. um, <laughs> as much as yeah i think yeah black moon was the first time that they were um Fucking with hip hop and kind of doing the very uh, light research to add to my life research. Um, <laughs> it says that the internet says who got the props came out in '92. Yeah, it yeah. came out well ahead of uh, it got them signed. Right. So it was their demo essentially, mm -hmm. and still by far their best song. Yeah. Supposedly, we'll the the we'll lore goes we'll um, Chuck Chill Out was the the A and R for Nervous. Um, that was like his one of his first big projects. So yeah, and uh, very. You know, it's one of those projects where there's some things about this record that are before and after. I'll say the first one, and it's not so much to the record, but more to the video. When Buckshot put on two straps to his backpack, <laughs> I was in high school. Shit changed. As <laughs> soon as that shit hit the video, you know, services. He was two strapping it? He was two strapping it. You know, because, you know. There yeah. was a time growing up where having one strap on the backpack was considered cool. There's right? a of hilarious course. joke in the 21 Jump Street movie when they Dude. go back to high school, and he's like, man, I'd no-strap it if I could. <laughs> he's like, I can't believe you're two-strapping it. You're such a dork. Like, yeah, it, yeah, it used to be a symbol of, like, dorkiness. And I'm not sure what spawned it. Maybe I thought about this today. Maybe coming up in Brooklyn when Brooklyn was Brooklyn, uh, having one strap on your bag meant that shit could get snatched. Right. Right. Like right. Maybe there was something yeah. to it. Well, he uh, does a lot of crimes on this record. I'd imagine he'd want to be secure. It, exactly. Yeah. With uh, with his bag full of guns. That's what they mean by <laughs> strapped. No. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he came strapped. I got this whole thing wrong. <laughs> so that that was definitely one point. Um, another thing I, I thought about today that I want to get you guys' reaction to is you know I'm sure we'll start to talk in a minute about the uniformity of subject matter. <laughs> on this record, uh, I can feel it coming already. <laughs> what I would say, though, is like this is almost like a proto drill record. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, we're killing people, and we're killing people, and that's what then we're we doing. Then we stop and smoke some weed. Then we kill some more. Then people. we kill some people. <laughs> people. Yeah. yeah. Then we talk about how good at rapping we are. Yeah. It's uh, you're not wrong. Yeah. It's it's something that a uh, a formula that is very modern in a way. Um, let let's get into it. I'm going to sit 
who got the props on the side as as our jam. I mean, I think any sentient hip hop lover knows how good that record you is. You can't not like that song. Yeah, it's such a great, a great song. And uh, to me, the thing that's so era defining about it is like I cannot think of it without thinking of both mixed tapes and mixed shows mm. it's just like the perfect record to get in and out of transitions mm. and like mm-hmm. just to set you could set it off with it you could end with it you yeah. could use it to get between some stuff mm. it's just it's just such a DJ friendly record and it was played just constantly on uh, college radio so and like mainstream radio when they had mixed shows yep. and just it's just a huge record for that and in for me in many ways like the quintessential record like that it's just such a like complete banger in that way dave that sample had been around for a while it's not like even an an obscure record why do we love that shit so much i don't know i think i think with this album with me it's just like um you hear this album and everything else you know what i mean yeah Um, i actually did the liner notes for this uh for the fat beats reissue i think 2017 oh wow and um you know like in while doing my research, it was really cool. I mean, they were mad young while they were doing this. They were like 17 yeah, uh, while they were doing that. this. And I think the significance of this record for me um, is, and I, and I guess historically too, is um, that it preceded all the big albums of 1993. So it came out before 36 Chambers, before Illmatic, um, before Ready to Die, before um, The Infamous. Like in the calendar year. In the calendar year. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty fucking crazy. And then, you know, Havoc is on their last song, which, you know, gives yeah. it a, a full circle sort of feel to it. Yeah, because um, I, I do feel like Mob Deep is is the heir right. to that sound. To that sound, they would come out of. I mean, the the infamous record I think is ninety five, and the the dark um, nihilist kind of b boy thing they were doing. Uh, I think Mob Deep picked up on. But uh, Black Moon to me represented when um, the cipher and the block came together. Mm-hmm. So if you think mm-hmm. about like a J Ru or something, that was cipher shit, but it was kind of more. Afrocentricity, kind of consciousness. Black Moon comes along and is like, "No, you can just rap about guns the whole time." <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was it was super influential. I think it's one of those things like we all put on a second strap, and then those who had their druthers and felt comfortable doing it, all of a sudden every freestyly dude had a gun, and it was like. It, so I think that's like one of the major mm. um, stylistic changes that happens on this record. Um, also, I feel like. Evil D uh, slash the beat miners um, invented lo-fi hip hop. Yeah, in a, in a way, totally the lo- the filtered baseline. Yeah, this and this is the this album is the land of the filtered baseline. Yeah, totally. Uh, Nate, if it's not who got the props, what is uh what's your go to jam on here? Um, there's other good songs. Mm. How many MCs is a very good song. Buck 'em mm. Down is a very good mm. song. Um, those are probably the other ones that I would mess with the most. And then I do like um I don't have the title on this screen, but let me click over the posse cut at the end. Like listening you back to this, I listen. Yeah, you to man. I listen to yeah. this a bunch. Um, doing research because it's not an album that like has was super important to me in my life so i didn't like i had to listen to it to like know what to talk about on here and i did like by the time that comes i'm like really ready for some other voices Mm. and so that was it was cool to hear havoc cool to hear smith and wesson and kind of see the whole like genesis of the whole boot camp click thing and just like you can just see like a lot of things started with this record so i i think those are some of the other good songs Dave, what are your non uh, who got the props jams on this record? Um, I I mean the the other one would be the the other easy one to pick, which is um, I got you open. Yeah. Um, 
original or remake song. I kind of like both, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, uh, we have to like say we're gonna cover the main album today, right. but if you want the full experience, it's worth tracking down the remixes for a lot of these songs. Like yeah. you might, they, you might have always known the remix and not known it was a remix. Some of them are just iconic, and we're gonna focus on the album versions. But really, the the like this was there's just a lot of different versions of these songs. The Beat Miners just had beats for days at this totally. point. Yeah. No, they they totally did. I I think I got you open. Of this album, the remix like is the highest charting song oh. uh, to come from this, and I'll talk about it in a second. I have a thing about that, but um, I would say for for me going back to it, um, powerful impact was always um, a jam back in my very brief journeyman mixing days. I <laughs> uh, used to love that the usage of the Buster Rhymes sample. Mm-hmm. Um, Buckshot Shorty has. He, he can be kind of laid back, but he's very, like, up and aggressive on this song. And I, I really like that about that. I thought it was a um, a dope sample. And it's, you know, once you hear that track, you have the template for what the beat miners and right. Evil D and, and, uh, and Buckshot are going to do for pretty much the entire record. Um, all right. So Jams for the Normies, it's, it's almost a gimme. It's like, who got the props, obviously. If you want to say I got your open remix, I'll give you that. Um... Or even, I mean, how isn't many isn't MCs? like it being a remix kind of take it out of the realm of the normies though? Like you had to have mm. that twelve inch, right? Or your boy had to have that twelve inch. <laughs> you know that, what I mean? That, that was the one that was on the radio though, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, that was the one that like if you weren't like into it, into it because um, and maybe we'll get into this in Nate's corner, record corner. I got this record via a um, uh, like a DJ service, right? Yeah, wow. uh, back in the day, so. It was kind of like, didn't know what it was, opened it up, and was like, oh, shit. I Got You Open kind of didn't even really register to me that time. Did didn't really get you open? No, it didn't. <laughs> Don't front. Um, <laughs> but later, when the when the remix came out with the with the Barry White sample and, and Buckshot kind of getting doing his melodic thing, I was like, oh, shit, that's that from that. So I think a lot of people know that song but don't know the original, which is also pretty good. Yeah. Um, What's it called? Uh, how many MCs? Also, I don't want to mm-hmm. uh, bypass that. I said that. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. How many MCs? I think is a, is another strong cut that had another uh, strong video where we have Evil D on the floor scratching with one turntable. <laughs> <laughs> I just I never. I'm not familiar that. with that video. That's uh, funny. You should definitely check it out. Okay. It's, it's classic of that era, um, and just really in. Can we talk about that for a minute? Like, it, Evil D is part of the group. Yeah, but. Him and his brother, Mr. Walt, who makes up the beat miners, mm-hmm. produced a lot of this stuff together. Mm-hmm. So that's always been a little Fun confusing beat. to me. Is it because like Evil D is a member of the group as the DJ? And that and he produced like the majority of it, but then yeah. Mr. Walt is all over it. And then right. almost all the remixes are Evil D remixes or Beat Miners remixes. And like I'm I don't know them that well. I've seen them in some documentaries and stuff. Yeah. They have this very famous uh rig for duplicating tapes in their house like they literally recorded huh. this in their house and they have like these eight like high-end tape decks all stacked on top of each other to do their mixtapes oh, no in shit. particular evil d's mixtapes so right. i forget what documentary that's in but it's really cool to see and just like a touch a slice of the time but anyway the reason i ask is like the beat miners became the known quantity they did production work for a lot of different people but like do you got do you guys have like do you think that's weird, or do you get what I, is going um, on here? So uh, when I did the liner notes, I, I interviewed um, Buckshot and um, Evil D. 
And so I kind of asked Evil D that question, and his answer was basically these are uh, Walt's records. Interesting. Yeah. That he flipped. Uh, that he gave to Evil D to flip. I see. And so that's so why his contributions like, were supplying samples. Pretty not much. Not really like touching the boards. Right. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know but a lot about hip hop. You should have we, a podcast. We have a journalist on the program, apparently. <laughs> um, okay. No, I didn't know that either. Yeah. I didn't and, understand. And, what and, the um, and Mr. Walt was um, sort of um, the mentor, and Evil D was the mentee. He worked gotcha. at um, A1 or Sound Library or one of the like mm-hmm. major record stores. Yeah. I can't remember which one. Um, I forgot which What's one. What's Music was. Factory without Mr. Walt? It's Music Factory. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when That's I interviewed him, they were like, yeah, Q-Tip used to come in all the time. And yeah. that was a big inspiration. Yep. So it was really cool. I mean, these dudes were deep in that fucking scene. For you know? sure. Of, of the of the crate digging kind of ethos, um, you know, Evil D, because of this record, is kind of cemented, right? Like, they had a weird label situation where um, they didn't put out a second record because they were disgruntled with the deal they had with Nervous, um, which is like... One of the low-key tragedies of all this is that they had... And lost a lot of creative time to some bullshit. They did, and, and it had a hold on... Just when they were peaking and had a hold on the game, um, they didn't put out another record for, I want to say, like three years yeah, or something Yeah, 96, like I think, is Warzone. And it's right. a totally different record. Totally different. And, and hip-hop had changed, too, but right. I just thought they had this moment, this dirty, dusty... Um, uh, beat digging moment it created this template for the whole click i always had like a little bit of a chip on my shoulder against the boot camp click because i'm like i feel like they're just kind of running with what buckshot did but like he couldn't he wasn't involved i didn't understand it at the time yeah. like why he wasn't out um right. i love smith and wesson though um so yeah i i feel like they missed an important time and i always think about like what could have been because from here i mean do we hear from evil d again Really meaningfully? Evil I mean, D is on the mix. Come on, <laughs> kick it. I just cannot hear his name without thinking of that. Sound bombing is 97. Mm-hmm. But I think it, I think you're, they're doing production work as the beat miners. Right. At that's the time. Oh, that's what that I'm time. saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it is him. Okay. He's uh, involved. But it's credited differently. And gotcha. then, yeah, he. Uh, for those who don't know, the a very obscure joke that I'm making, he mixed and hosted Sound Bombing, which is a raucous records compilation that was really important to me in teaching me who all the new underground cats are. And he says, Evil D is on the mix. Come on, kick it like seven times on there. And talks <laughs> about putting, putting yeah. incense cones up Finsta Bundy's nose and a bunch of other weird, <laughs> random, like, d- we should do someday our, like, definitive thing on like dj humor yeah it's like uh, i just yeah. was subject to so much dj humor in the late 90s and early 2000s subjected to from it. friends from scratch videos from right. mixtapes it's like a very specific kind of juvenile kind of humor that dominates dj in like the way they talk to each other and reference things it, anyway jokes, that, yeah. uh, an, for another episode but Absolutely. um yeah so i think that's what's happening there beat miners got kind of big right. and took their sound to other places yeah, so as it's a, as a team. scattered credits on different things rather than major projects with huge like placements you know what i'm saying yeah no no i do because they they did a bunch of cool stuff um cool stuff after them uh because they're productive as hell there's just like so many beats yeah and mm-hmm. i think in the sample kind of era when this was the thing to do, they really had a lock on it for maybe two years. I think I think about it in the same way that um, I think the success of Naughty by Nature is like bracketed into like for 18 months. There was nothing bigger right, than that. Right, right. And I think for about 18 months, there was nothing 
you know, dustier or more in the underground. In the, I mean, but yes and no, because it was like it was on cameo. Like I, yeah. I know, I don't you know? I got you open. It was real mix show fodder. It made it all the way out here. But like Hyro was on cameo, and they're still an underground group, even though they were on Jive. You know what I mean? They have mm. an underground sound, and, and I mean, they pioneered underground business practices and stuff and like they, that. They were actually on a major and like Nervous is a, a yeah. little label. Yeah. But is all I'm indie? saying is my pants leg by itself went up (laughs) (laughs) you still got it (laughs) i wanted to bring it back today um just kind of as an aesthetic and stylistically like it was killing shit and then they were like in jail they couldn't they couldn't put a record out which when we talked to akinelli um he referenced that as like hey no matter what the industry fuckery is you still got to put out music because he's like you saw how black moon got caught up and I don't, I don't think it was ever. He the said same that. Effect. I don't remember him saying that. You just re-listened to it, right? Because we put it up that as a classic. That lives in my heart. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's talking to us from the Miami strip club. It was That's brilliant. so funny. Oh, um, let's talk about uh, skips. You, Nate, you said you to man, which is one of your your joints. I'm, that's one of my skips. Really? Yeah. I, I just I think what it was, and I'll just be honest about this. I don't I don't love this record. I think there are some really good songs on it, but there's there's a lot of skips on here for me. I think the songs that were not singles, and then by like the reason I phrased it the way I did is like I really really wanted to hear something else. By the time you demand comes around, I'm like, all right, have Other it. Other voices. Smith and Wesson. That's great. Like Five okay. uh, FT is only on three of the songs. Yeah. It's a ton of buckshot. Yeah, just yeah. doing what Buckshot does, and Buckshot's a good rapper, and yeah. he is compelling, and this is a good record. But, but it's that's not how Buckshot it's works in numbers. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's not a record that like means anything to me. So it's just like I recognize that it's good. Like people, I had a couple. I went out on Thursday. I know it was weird. Uh, it was weird for everyone. But I went out and you didn't, or no. you you didn't yeah. no, until after later. I left. Okay. Oh, you did come. Uh, I, I left yeah, before you yeah. left, yeah. and then. Um, I uh, they were like you know what's coming up on the podcast I'm like oh we're doing Black Moon they're like oh I love that record I'd be like really what do you love about it and they'd be like the beats <laughs> but like, yeah totally the beats are amazing um, and so I just think there's a couple things I noticed listening to it back through uh, it, Buckshot's like I like to learn when I'm listening to rap and he's not someone I can learn anything from it's like it's not like he he doesn't talk about it how he feels about anything or like. There's no social commentary. There's just like just the, a lot of the things I'm looking for from rapping are just not present here, and it's just a lot of the same stuff over and over, which is fine. It's a it's a it's a good formula. It works for them. It's a good record. But by the time these other dudes come in, I'm like, ah, some other stuff. Yeah, I really need some other stuff. But I, I think the songs that work the best have more. Like we all we all know we're getting filtered basslines and dusty drums. The bigger songs, the who got the props, the how many MCs, the melodic part of the beat are in it more often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the ones that are super minimal, I think, are kind of forgettable. Yeah. 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 So I don't you. know the names yeah. of those songs, but and that was a long answer <laughs> exactly. to a short question. Exactly. But when you if, said I, if I didn't have to listen for homework, I would have been skipping like right. a lot of these. Like, uh, okay, I don't need the third track or the third verse on this one or whatever. Uh, make money, I think, is. is an example of what you're talking about. It, it doesn't have a melodic or vibey thing going through it. It's just the ruggedness, um, and it, the the chorus is kind of like simple and repetitive. So you demand and make money are my two. Um, but uh, I like this record more than you. Dave. You do. You do. Most Dave. people do. Skippers. Um, Skippers to me, um, sort of on the same um, wavelength as Nate, um, in the sense that there's not much differentiation. So. I mean, can you tell me what the difference between powerful impact and buck 'em down is? 
Not much. Not much. Now they're both yeah. great songs, yeah, but yeah, yeah. so I, I guess you. for me it's not like it's not like a hard skip, but it's more like uh, a little bit too samezies. You know what I mean? And yeah. so uh, easily uh, jettisoned. You know what I mean? In in my mind. Yeah, I think um, in that way it's actually very a very modern record. I think records yeah. of this time were trying to have like we even talked about this on the the ill-fated Dell episode, which we have to re-record. <laughs> um, about how Dell's record was a lyric record that Dante Ross came back and like infused with different hooks and kind of like Structure. peppered it up, structured it up a little right, bit. Right. This definitely kind of doesn't have that, and it's modern in the sense that it. But but it it does have it does have yeah, hooks. hooks. It, it's it's like filtered baseline drums come in, little bit of melody, sixteen bar hook about robbing or sixteen bar <laughs> verse right, about robbing, right. screamed chorus, which yeah. I love a screamed chorus. I'm gonna read. They list all the people. In who screaming, screaming the chorus, who are as backing vocalists, I'll, nice. I'll read it in a second. It's awesome. Um, most people don't do that. I think that's a really they said they actually have a lot of weird credits on this record. Uh, and then sixteen more, scream more, sixteen more. That's it. And then yeah. fade out. It's like that's yeah. the song. Right. That's every right. song essentially. Right. And some are really good versions of that song, and some are okay versions of that song. Right. And that uh, averages out to a pretty good record. Yeah, I feel like um, it'd be interesting to see if they were in a different situation with a you know. Could somebody come to them and say, you need one girl song. Right. You need one. Yeah. Right. Where's right. your weed song? Where's yeah. your reggae song? Yeah, Where's yeah, your totally. one for the ladies? Like, yeah. And I usually hate stuff like that. Yeah. But I, I do think a little bit of um, thematic uh, spread would have yeah. would have totally. helped it out a little bit. There's no story. Like usually at least you get a story, like a narrative. Yeah. Like if you like, let's go inside the mind of the robber. Yeah. Right? Like totally. what's he thinking? What's he wearing? Right. Where are they going? Right. Who's right. he robbing? You know what I mean? Like um, Nas is the perfect example of that. Mm, obviously Nas is a better writer. I mean, you, you guys know my take on, on too much singing in music. But yeah. God, I was dying for some singing. Totally. Music. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Dave a reversing. Uh, six years into the podcast, Dave finds a thing he wants more singing on. Yeah. The one, the one record. Um, so yeah, little a little uniform, um, and also you know I feel like Buckshot could have used more of a foil. Even when Five FT comes in, they don't sound terribly different to me. He's yeah, a slightly no, higher sure. pitched, but he's right. doing kind of the same thing. Yeah, he's yeah. doing a, he's doing Over. a similar thing. They're so even both short. Yeah, it's like <laughs> he didn't have any tall friends. Evil yeah. D seems like a big guy. Uh, I think Evil D is pretty. He's big. a big guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, can I do the thing? So Black yeah. Moon themselves do backing vocals. Someone credited as DEA, which I would not have let in the studio personally. <laughs> uh, Drew Ha, who's Drew like ha. kind of their manager oh, yeah, and like label, yeah. label head. Um, moving forward here, Havoc. Um, Lynn Blackwell. So there was a woman around at one point. Mr. Walt, Steel Tech. Mm. And then this is the other kind of crazy credit for my IMDb trivia heads. There is a... Leo Swift Morris is credited as, as the engineer, and then there are four backup engineers, including the legend Eddie Sancho. Yeah, so it's you, such you a weird thing. But the, there's a story behind the engineering thing too. They had to move uh, studios a couple times, so they did at D and D, and then had to move it somewhere else, and blah blah blah. So, so they had multiple yeah. engineers. Yeah. I was going with you need different people after they get a contact high. <laughs> <laughs> after they've been like suffocated by stress smoke, they need a. There's like need four guys pulling on a bass knob, just like <laughs> trying to filter it even harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> With a little rope. They're like, like we need some torque. <laughs> More filter. <laughs> At no point did any of them in that studio think that their shit would be reduced down to lo-fi chill beats to study to. Right. Like right. that is honestly the 
the most lasting impact of it this is. record. It's a powerful impact. Yeah, that's a big one, though. Oh, <laughs> <Boom>. nice. <laughs> um, it's the beat. The beats on here are revolutionary. The They're so are dope. Really? Like they they sound so much like '90s hip hop. Like right. you put it in any movie, any documentary, you'll be like, "Oh, are we in Brooklyn '90s?" Like right. I'm here. Yeah. It's just it's just it's suffused with that like kind of uh, historicity, but. Yeah, it, they all do kind of sound the same, though. I, I hate to say it. this guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm thinking of the thesaurus out here. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, um, you, you know, um, our boy Sean Kantrowitz uh, making Illmatic. I mean, um, yeah. if this was just an EP of five songs, hardest EP ever. The hardest EP ever. If you, know you were, if you it would take, take away the redundancy factor. Yeah, I got you open. Who got the props? How many MCs? Um, fuck them down. Fuck down. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me one more, and we have a, the the best. Any, pick yeah, one. pick one. I'll go <laughs> powerful impact. Gotcha open, like, right? Yeah, yeah. gotcha open. Yeah. So, so they they it seems like one of the dopest demos, right? Like that right. that ever came through. I don't think Nervous was a shop that was set up to like develop them as artists, and like they just had something super raw um, that they brought, and it was a dope kind of. I was going to say a breath of fresh air, but the air wouldn't be fresh. Right. <laughs> it's like a, a dank a, air. A, yeah, a, br- a breath of like exhaled blunt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this shit smells like a Dutch master. Um, but I will say this. Yes, the beats are, are revolutionary in a way. I think Buckshot's innovations kind of got fucked over. I, I think a lot of people ended up doing his shit, especially the I Got Your Open remix when he got like melodic with it mm-hmm, when he took mm-hmm, the dark mm-hmm. shit and made it melodic i kind of feel like cats and boot camp click like ran that shit for three oh, four years everybody definitely. was like it's funny th- like you've done that twice now where you like say like boot camp click is somehow like against him he is in boot camp no click. It, he's the, the leader same. of boot camp it, click it, and that's fine yeah. and it's like earl sweatshirt is kind of the the leader of, of a sound but right. i also go you sound like a son of Earl. Yeah, right? I know you. Mean. You know what I mean. Interesting. So okay, I, and, I, I get it a little more now. You become a parody of yourself. Buckshot couldn't come out during that time. I just remember being like kind of salty about it. Like I'd like to see him because those things are still there. Like right, the, right. The sing sogginess, how you blend those flavors, how they did what they really did when they popped was rough and smooth. Like the beat is so, I think you were kind of saying that too. Yeah. The beat is so rough, but then you get these like strings from a Barry White record over it. And then you get Buckshot singing melodically about shooting somebody in the face. That kind of mixture of rough and smooth is still like a thing today, for, be- for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about three song runs um, on this record. As Dave gets a text from Buckshot. (laughs) (laughs) It's Drew Haw. He's like, you better not publish this. Shout out to Drew, though. He was, uh, for the interviews, he was actually, like, one of the most, um, you know, uh, better interviews for it. Nice. Uh, Yeah, I actually had a very brief, as much shit as I've just talked. There was a time we were trying to bring out uh, Boot Camp Click to do a a show and had some interaction with Drew Haw. He he was a cool cat. Nice. Yeah. It it didn't work out like we we couldn't make it. You happen. couldn't afford that many plane tickets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It didn't don't, click. Don't front. Um. <laughs> the boot camp didn't click. That's hilarious. Um, I got one. Okay. Uh, and it was, it's finding two like it's the most amazing song, the other good song, and the one in the middle. <laughs> Wait it's, a minute. Uh, who got the props? Act like you want it into Buckham down. Okay. okay. That's a pretty strong three no, song no, that's, run. That's re- and that's yeah. earlier in the record. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yeah, Dave. Um, for me, it's I got you open. Shit is real, and then enter the stage. 
Ooh, did I get the, the I got the order wrong then. I had I got you open into the stage and how many MCs? Oh. Did I am I looking at a I don't know. Am I, I don't looking know. at another run? Um it's kind of late in the record. Where I will definitely agree with you guys is it, it was a bit of a struggle for me to find like three. It, you got the order wrong, Damone. Did I? Yeah. How Not many MCs is time. the second to last? <laughs> and you do, you demand is the last. I mean, th- there's something to be said for um, you know honing in on a sound and committing to it and going for it. Yeah. But just listenability in terms of I mean, like we're we're rap dudes, but like we like music. I like musicality. Yes. You know, yeah. like and I, uh, I'm dying for a second melody somewhere. Okay. You know what I mean? That, yeah, that's fair. The other that's fair. song, the other album from 1993, which is like a pinnacle of the West Coast sound that we are also recording today, though that's not important to people listening, is one of the most cinematic, melodic, totally. craziest right. sounding records. So I'm, I'm literally at the gym listening to this, then that. And it's like the comparison is not very favorable for this record. When, when you Agreed. went from Tim's to uh, to Converse, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tim's to house shoes <laughs> yeah. in the gym. Uh, 1993 is an incredible year incredible. in the sense that you get these dusty masterpieces. You get this, you get Into the 36 Chambers, and then you get something as bright and dynamic as Doggy Style. Same year, right. like, same right. fucking year. It's same it's year, both like at the top of the game, people yeah. who are like excellent practitioners of these art forms, and they did something so wildly different. It was a weird week, like listening to both. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind totally. of like dissonance. A little bit, a yeah. little bit. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the overall impact of this record is probably, from a production standpoint, mm-hmm. people showing people a different way to get to the same result, mm. right? It's just like okay. taking a a, a, hi- a hardware innovation and like cranking it and like showing how much can be done with it. And like, I I think the, um, there are some head nodders. I don't, I'm like, I'm trying to like think of something philosophical or something to say. It's just like, these beats are really, really well made. Totally. And like just metronomic and just like really interesting and that they they really hold up to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's something. It's a sound, and that people are still uh, going for in this day and age. Um, let's let's get into it. We've kind of been dancing around it for for the last thirty minutes. Is it timeless, or is it a record of its time, Dave Ma? Completely record of its time. Yeah, completely record of its time. I mean, it certainly set forth uh, some foundational stuff. I mean, that we've talked about production wise that have ended up being timeless. But um, like I said, there's something to be said for them honing into their sound and committing to it. But having said that, kind of boring. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> a double heel turn? This is amazing. People can get mad about it, but it's like uh, it just—it doesn't make me feel anything. It's just—it's just well made, like street hip hop, and it's—it's it's good in that way. But I just don't relate to this music, and I, I've never been the biggest boot camp click guy. Like, this is not my shit. Clearly. Um, <laughs> I would say that uh, the sound itself uh, actually has proven to be timeless. I wouldn't have said this five years ago, but just seeing what musical ideas lived on, and it's easy to be like, well, he just filtered the bass line. Yeah, but in right. such a way that... Um, there's more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. there's more yeah. to it than that. I don't want to come off reductive. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. But it's, it's kind of like the musical innovations and honestly, just as, you know, I don't want to pull the, I was outside card, <laughs> but I was outside <laughs> and, and this was huge. Like, and everyone that was in, that was around me, like the aesthetic of it, um, the approach to it 
was and was keep new. in mind we're three thousand miles away. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's it's kind of like for something like that to hit, and I don't like all the East Coast shit. Like I've said things that people find blasphemous on this program because some of the I just didn't care for at that time. Right. But this is MVD. one of the things that um, definitely resonated with me. I think the sound is timeless. Going back to the album, yeah, it's it's a bit of a slog, but I would say this. There haven't been that many albums in this retro run that we did where I wasn't like, okay, we can, you know, two, yeah. three songs. Well, let's, they, let's they were trying to fill CD length yes. time frames. Yeah, that's a great, yeah. great point. It's yeah. like there's um, 74 minutes of information on a CD, and a lot yeah. of people wanted to get every damn second of it so out of right. it i don't know right. if that was the case with this it's actually quite a bit shorter than that i can look up the runtime but i mean we we, we, we brought up this sort of uh, as a corollary to uh no need for alarm and, it, and if we're going head to head no need for alarm all day and some of the things that i've said about this album i can kind of say about no need for alarm too it kind of sounds yeah. the same it has sort of the same structure throughout but you don't get much relief it's <laughs> kind of the same <laughs> right like, the thing but but Del, Del, Del Del's is just writing so, and right. delivery was so much more exactly he's so much more dynamic yeah, yeah. Uh, this um, is 52 minutes. Uh, which, you Jesus. know. And it feels like it. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it can be years? a little bit long. Love it. Just kidding. What I think is interesting about this record, though, is Black Moon, um, you know, speaking to timelessness, um, we'll play the Spotify game. Who got the props? 22 million. Yep. Okay. Uh, how many MCs? 20 of those are for me in the yeah. last week. Uh, wow. <laughs> buck them down. Uh, three million. So you know, we we just did freestyle fellowship uh, the other week, and we're like, "Fuck, man, how is their shit not more?" Right. So this is an right. underground record on a on a label that did one rap record, um, and it still has this kind of staying power. So yeah, that's that's how good that song is. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um. All right. So that that was that was Black Moon, into the stage. Our ninety three retro series continues. We got more shit that we're gonna come with. Apparently, we're doing Balloon Mind State. The people have <laughs> ordained it. Let's I'm go. like, y'all want more Day Law from us? Don't like, go back <laughs> and listen to our March episode. Just listen to the new Balloon Mind State, which will have all new takes. Absolutely. All new takes. If you don't listen to the previous one. IMIB sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned, y'all. It's, it's, it, it could get spicy. We'll throw in some surprises. Uh, we appreciate everybody's patronage. Speaking of patronage, fuck with our Patreon, patreon.com slash dadbodrappod. I just threw a new Dems Gems playlist up in the piece. Nate's going to be uh, coming out with the fly sporadic in, uh, you know, a decent amount of time. Sorry, Soon. I didn't, didn't want to paint you in a corner. Soon. Soon. Soon-ish. Before I go to Japan. Before he goes to Japan, he's going to drop yeah. a fly sporadic. Um, Oh, my God. Did I forget Nate's record corner? You did, but it's going to be a short one because I don't own this record on vinyl because you guys have heard what I think of it for the last hour. I'm already nervous. Um, <laughs> all, all I ha- the only thing I have... The only thing I have on wax from Black Moon is the Who Got the Props 12-inch, and it's got two different remixes on it and a couple of instrumentals. And another song called F It Up, which I yeah. don't think is on the record, no, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, so that's like the B-side. I haven't listened to it in years. Um, but that's that's uh, that's what I've got for Nate's Record Corner. It's called the short corner today. Um, <laughs> I There was a time when, um, I don't know, I think the homie had the vinyl. Like, I was in a DJ collective. Somebody had the vinyl. Yeah. 
it also suffers from the thing you talked about with single uh, LP with 52 minutes of music on it. Yeah, uh, when so I was reading Discogs extensively today, people were like, "Jesus Christ!" But that's why quiet. they did the repress with Dave's liner notes. Yeah, from Fat Beats. I'm assuming it's on two LPs. Yes, yeah, it's two yeah. LPs and okay. tapes and a bunch of ephemera. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy Dave was involved. Uh, <laughs> of course. As always. Of Evil Dima. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, y'all. That that was that was into the stage, and now we will exit. <laughs> Dad bod rap pod. Um, you know, I want to sort of move forward um, before we get into the book portion as well as the wonderful musical accompaniment part. Um, and since you guys got the stage, um, let's talk a little bit about Messiah Music and his contributions. I want to, you know, um, give the program a couple minutes to talk about him. Um, I love the record. Can you guys just sort of tell us how how he struck you, his involvement, and how everything snowballed from there? Uh, I mean, I brought him in. I had a list of producers that I had in mind for the project and he was on the list and then once I really sat down and took a list at, took a look at the list of producers that I thought of I think he was the one from the jump where it was like why was there any other name on the list and so his role was sending me just a ridiculous amount of beats at a time in his personal life when he probably did not have the, but he was still sending them to me. And we actually, I gathered like this gigantic pack of beats from him that I then sent to Adam to go through. And I'm thinking that Adam is going to listen to these like a rapper and be like, okay, keep this one, get rid of this one. We're just going to go with the, the best 15 beats from this huge pack of beats. And Adam actually went through and wrote a paragraph about all but one beat. And there was one beat where his only, the only sentence was like, I can't really fuck with this beat. Everything <laughs> else though, he, everything else, he wrote like well-written paragraphs about where he was starting to piece together like beats in terms of these could be movements of the same song or this beat reminds me of this character in the book or this this beat reminds me of this moment in the book and i thought that that was a really thoughtful way of going about that process and also i know that i can speak for messiah in saying that he was really honored that adam was willing to come in consideration with his work in order to be that detailed in his feedback and even then like of those beats we really um, we probably kept 50% and then swapped in an additional 50% that wound up on the final product of the soundtrack. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was one of the coolest, I think, processes of putting the beats together that I've been a part of. And 
I think Messiah, obviously, it was kind of like, again, you know, why anybody else to produce this soundtrack other than him, you know? That's awesome to hear. Um, the record is really good. We're talking, of course, about the Golem of Brooklyn original soundtrack, which you guys uh, collaborated on. It's a soundtrack to your novel, um, Adam Mansback. Uh, before we get too far into this, I'm actually really curious how you guys met. Um, my memory is of meeting Def C when he was still in high school, or at least watching him perform when he was still in high school. Um, he came up, at least in part, through an organization in Chicago called Young Chicago Authors that I had a relationship with. I would slide through Chicago probably a couple of times a year, if not more, on book tours and just on the road hustling, trying to bring home a little money. Um, and I would like do a performance or lead a workshop or build in some form or fashion with the people, the kids coming up through this program. So you know, this was an incredible, incredibly fruitful time in the Chicago hip hop spoken word literary scene. And Def C was one of the kids that I remember seeing back then and being impressed by, you know, along with people like No Name. Um, and then I think we really connected when he was in college. He went on, I'm giving his biography now, you know, um, uh, Def C went to uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison in the first wave program, which was the only program in the country then, maybe still, that had this kind of very sophisticated spoken word hip hop scholarship program where they were really cultivating a core group of kids from all over the country um, who were incredibly gifted in these fields. And they were thinking in critical ways about what the pedagogy looked like, how you holistically taught this art form as a literary medium, which was really ahead of its time and ahead of the curve in so many ways. And Def C was one of the inaugural cohort along with, let me see, Denez Smith, right? Um, that might be the only other person I can name, but I remember nah, coming- Denez Smith, Sophia Snow, who now runs uh, the program. Okay, who now runs the well. joint. Yeah, 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 shout out to her. Yeah, um, so yeah. So, so yeah, I remember, you know, so basically I was just, you know, tracking uh, Def C and watching him flourish and grow as a poet. And, you know, really from a distance, like we were sporadically in touch over social media. You know, I always liked the kid, you know what I mean? Thought he had a, thought he had a good head on his shoulders. You know, he was also like nine and a half feet tall. So he was, you know, in some ways inspired this whole golden movement. Um, and, you know, as he as he started putting out records, I was just listening to them as a fan and like maybe sending him a, a quick, you know, DM or something like, yo, man, this shit is dope. It's I, I'm, I'm happy to see you doing your thing. Um, and, and really just, you know, watching with pride the way you do when somebody you've known when they were only seven feet tall, like is out here flourishing. Um, and in terms of this project, you know, I'm always thinking a little bit with a novel about how I can collaborate. Writing a novel is a very solitary process. I don't want to say a lonely process, um, but a solitary process. And because I think about music and I care about music and I like to collaborate and I like to do outside the box shit and do fly shit that other writers don't do, I'm always thinking in that direction. So like 2005, I put out Angry Black White Boy, your man O-Dub did a mixtape. 
simple mixtape. It was just songs that I thought the main character would listen to. I gave O-Dub a list of records. He mixed them. We put it out. I also got uh, Keo, um, graffiti writer Keo, a.k.a. Lord Scotch, a.k.a. Blake Lethem. Him and SP1 painted like a 20-foot mural in Soho to like celebrate the launch of the book. You know, all these things are things I had to like twist arms, break kneecaps to get my publisher to agree to. They didn't see the value in any of it. You know what I mean? Um, 2013, I put out Rage is Back, stepped the mixtape game up to the next level, brought in my guy Jay Period to do the Rage is Back mixtape. This was not just songs. This was original music. This was like original freestyles by Black Thought, Common, Talib, Shad, all kinds of people. Very fly, met with a much bigger audience. You know, we really thought deeply and critically about how to make a mixtape that was reflective of the book. It had snippets from the audio book as read by my man, Danny Hawk, who also read this one. So when the Golem of Brooklyn was sold in early, early last year, um, I started sort of casually thinking about what a musical accompaniment might look like. And I think around that time, Def C dropped uh, the, the For All Debts album. Is that right? And I was listening to that heavy. I was like, this is a fucking masterpiece. I really, really rock with this record, you know? And I would rock with this record if I'd never met this dude. Um, he was really just, you know, I think what Def C does that a lot of people do not do is he's able to both be deeply introspective and also funny. The flow is not suffering just because a lot of thought goes into it. There's an incredible balance there's a deep level of poetry and praxis behind these bars. Um, the wordplay and the beauty of these lines is unparalleled to me. Like he was operating at a super high level. So I was like, huh, maybe Adam wants to fuck around and make some music inspired by the Golden of Brooklyn. I don't know, a song, something. So I hit him up out of nowhere like, yo, I got a weird idea. And I explained that I was publishing this novel and I pitched this idea and he was like, yo, send me the book. I'll stop there. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Thank you. That was uh, that was super deep. We appreciate it. Um, so. Before we kind of I guess I, what I'm really curious about, the thing that I'm most curious about, having ran the album once and really, really enjoyed it, I thought it was an excellent album, whether I had known anything about Talmudic scholarship or golems or any anything at all. It's just a good rap record. And that's kind of important to us, right? We're just, you know, like, you guys are our friends, but we don't just have everyone on because we, you know, if we did that, that's all the show would be about and it wouldn't be special. So I guess what I want to get into is Def C, how much did you reference the novel? How, like once you, where, obviously the novel is the jumping off point, but I'm imagining there's not a chapter about George Costanza. There might be one about Jewish gangsters. I'm not sure. I haven't read it yet, but like how much of the novel is in the rhymes and how did you approach it as a creative project? And wh what is the relationship between the two works of art? Um, so I would say that um, I procrastinated I can't, I can't even lie. Like Adam and I were communicating on a pretty daily, like damn near daily basis about it for months. And the entire time I was like sending him bits and pieces of things that were inspired by the novel. And the one thing that I did not want to do 
or I didn't set out to do was to create an album that was in the mold of The Prince Among Thieves, right? Because it's, it's an amazing album. Prince Paul's a genius. You know, you have Breeze Bruin rhyming on the whole thing in addition to just a slew of amazing artists. And I knew that for a variety of reasons, I wasn't going to be able to replicate something like that. But the reference point that Adam gave me that was a helpful reference point was Sky Zoo, Mind of a Saint, the album he did with the other guys that was based on Snowfall and the characters and the elements of Snowfall. And I remember listening to that and then over time, just kind of, even when I wasn't actively writing songs, I was thinking about the album. Like I, I spent, you know, a good five to six months just thinking about the record in addition to really trying to like start putting pen to paper and write stuff. And ultimately it was kind of like, okay, these are things that I know I want to say about being a white Jewish person in the United States. And also, you know, like there were a bunch of different ideas that I had in terms of the structure of the album. There are like a bunch of different concepts. Um, some of those will be fully explored in, for, you know, future music with Messiah music. Um, but when it came down to the album, I probably recorded 19 or 20 songs. And then I was in the studio with Boathouse and I had this huge grand idea for like a, a sprawling opus about being Jewish. And then Boathouse sat me down and was like, look, essentially in the kindest way possible because Boat is, is such a nice guy, in the kindest way possible, like give us the fucking album. Like just give us the soundtrack. And I think Adam's guidance too was really helpful because it became very clear that the most compelling music that was being made over, over this course of time was music that was directly related to characters and events in the book. So I would say Lord Costanza III is probably the one song on this soundtrack that's really for me and doesn't really have anything to do with the novel, but there are elements of the novel on the album, including elements of Confederate flags in Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. which were inspired by conversations that Adam was having in the book. Thanks for, for kind of helping to draw that out. Cause I was also fascinated about how do you come up with something that is so on topic, but also doesn't, um, it doesn't get tiresome sometimes when when folks get uh too deep into the concept the album will get tiresome but it really plays really well the question i wanted to ask both of y'all start with you um uh mr monsbach is this album to me and i was joking with def c before we got on it gives me the feeling of like a jewish x-clan like you are you are learning about an experience which hasn't happened for me in music in a long ass time you're learning about the experience of a people through rap music, right? And so I'm I'm interested to know, and maybe I'm I'm ignorant. Is this not one of the most expansive explorations of Jewishness in rap music? I think it must be. Um, certainly the most listenable. Um, you know, I think it's tricky, right? Like you want to be educational and informative and provocative 
and push these ideas and these topics without being dogmatic and unlistenable. And, you know, X-Clan managed to do that brilliantly by delving into a high level of abstraction, right? Like Brother J is giving you this history, but it's very cloaked and masked in sort of Afrofuturist funkiness. You know what I mean? So you're, he might be talking, like, you know, I think somebody had to tell me that, like, Days of Outrage, Operation Snatchback was about the Yusef Hawkins rally on the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't think I would have known that right. if I hadn't, like, read about that. You know, re- the source said so, so, oh, okay, like, let me see. Um, and, you know, and, and I think, to me, what's brilliant about what Def C does in this album, it's a few things. One is that it's not a regurgitation of the book. It's not a summary of the book or a retelling of the book. It's not the, like, you know, book and record set. It's not the audio book. It's a, it's a grappling with the themes in the book, but he takes these themes and he makes them his own. He expands them. Um, he deepens what I did in the book by bringing his own lens to it. So there are things that are straight out of the book and are reflective of the book. He's rhyming as the golem. He's rhyming as a dofo, the bodega cat. But even when he's doing those things that are like very one-to-one from the book, there are still ideas that are making their way in that are his, that aren't just mine, that are linked, but that are enlarging the, 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 the sense of what the book has to say. And, you know, the book deals with a lot of Jewish history, but more than that, it deals with the complexities and the paradoxes and the, the pain and the agony of trying to reconcile a Jewish morality with some of what exists in the world. And it doesn't really offer a lot of easy answers, but it, it's committed to asking questions about fundamentally what it means to be Jewish. Like, what does that mean in the world today? What does it require of us? And I think the Def C takes those themes that he's also been thinking about. I mean, I, I hollered at him because I had this sense even though we didn't like talk on a regular basis, that he was someone who thinks about these issues in much the same way that I do. And part of that is coming up through hip hop. Part of that is having the kind of socio-political worldview, the, the lens on race and patriarchy and white supremacy that hip hop is gonna give you as a white kid coming up in it in certain cities at certain times. It's gonna, it's gonna make you think critically about things like your Jewishness. You know, so I had a sense that he was already kind of on the same page as me. And it turns out I was like very, very right about that. You know, um, it's something that we were able to have like very expansive and enriching conversations about. And like the album to me is like, you know, when I heard the first, like when he would send me tracks piecemeal and on numerous occasions, I would tear up listening to the song because it was so beautiful and so deeply keyed into what I was doing without in any way being derivative. And even beyond that, like I'm doing something extremely foolish right now, have been for like the last six months, which is I started almost immediately writing a sequel to the Golem of Brooklyn, (laughs) which is so fucking stupid from like a professional (laughs) standpoint. Like the book might not sell any copies. It might be like an unsellable thing to write a sequel, but I mention it because some of the ideas that, Def C injected into that album were so important to me that I find myself thinking about them as I move into the sequel. So the book inspired the album, and now the album is inspiring ideas in the sequel that I probably wouldn't have come to on my own if I hadn't been sparked by some of what he's doing on the record. 
man that that's so dope thanks for for kind of giving that insight and the don't want to give the book short shrift uh the golem of brooklyn is out right now uh via the penguin uh pick up a copy um i'm excited to read the book now having listened to the record a couple times um so i, I will kinda... say adam it really it worked it really made me want to read the book like the yeah. uh i uh, i would think in a lot of these and are you saying it wasn't you narrating it's danny hoke on the record it's me narrating because it sounded narrating. like your voice yeah, no, so it's, it's like me. damn danny hoke does a good adam mansback well, impression it's <laughs> it's it's funny because so so um danny hawk did the audiobook oh okay, and okay. Danny, danny hawk did the official sanctioned one okay. world audiobook and kills it and and really okay. i had to go hard to make sure that they hired him because they like you know they were on some they didn't want to pay him his rate and shit and i was like who the fuck else could do this right. who else are you gonna get to do the voice of the golem with the right. proper like glottal eastern european inflection and also do the voices of these hasids and also speak the arabic when it comes up and actually speak the yiddish like danny's that dude danny's one of the great actors of our generation happens to be a very good friend of mine so like danny did the audiobook my plan was to get the audio of the audiobook in time that we could oh. chop it up and use it on the record. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if that was what happened or not. But I'm loving the explanation. Keep going. Yeah, but it didn't happen in time. So okay. we made kind of a last minute or close to last minute decision that we couldn't really wait any longer. And also, I was like trying to be slick with with the audiobook producer. I didn't want to tell them what I was going to do with the audio <laughs> if they did send it. Right. So I couldn't like right. push too hard. Right. You know. Hey, uh, could like, I? I got a I'll, deadline. I got to yeah. use this illegally, like, kind of, like, even though it's mine. Yeah, you're like, oh, <laughs> don't worry if it's mixed yet. Just send it to me. Send me the raw tracks <laughs> if you have to. You know, so we kind of had to cut bait on that. But actually, I'm I'm glad that we did because I read it a little differently than Danny. I think for the audiobook, the way he reads it is perfect. I could never do those voices. I'm doing public readings now, and I'm like strategizing about what I read because I don't want to bump up against some Yiddish that I don't fucking know how to pronounce. <laughs> right. Um, but I'm glad that I got to read it on the record because I, I do read it a little bit differently than Danny, and I'm glad to have that represented in terms of the record. Um, I think I recorded all of it in like a little pillow fort at my summer place in like 20 minutes. I did everything in one take. It was very off the cuff. And I was going off of Def C's notes on what parts he wanted. Okay. Um, so I was like trying to make sure I recorded the parts he had asked me for, um, which was which was pretty wild. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it, it helps the album flow. It reinforces all the themes, and it it really did. I was like uh, like I got to get to a Barnes and Noble or something. I have to read this yeah. book now. I want to yeah. I want to know the rest. Um, so I think it was a very successful collaboration. You guys obviously work really well together, and. Um, yeah, I think um, uh, it really like sparked something in me. I don't know if this like is even something you'd want to know, but I immediately felt like I needed to watch Inglorious Bastards. I was like, <laughs> I want to continue. Like after the record was over, I was like, I can't buy the book right now. Where do I go next? What's your next energy? Best. <laughs> yes, the next best uh, place for that. And oh, that's that's a that's a great call. I actually just listened to X Clan. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, uh, Adam Monsbach, Def C, thank you guys so much for coming on the program. The Golem of Brooklyn original soundtrack is out right now. All the streams. The book is also out um, everywhere you can get books. We appreciate the fuck out of y'all. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you guys for having us, man. This was a lot of fun.
appetite for some nice bloodline.